Welcome back to City Journal's 10 Blocks podcast. This is Rafael Mangual, a contributing editor of City Journal and a senior fellow here at the Manhattan Institute. I'm also the author of the new book, Criminal Injustice. And I am joined today by Professor Peter Moscos, who's a professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He's a national expert on policing and crime. He's the director of John Jay's NYPD Executive Master's Program graduate of Princeton and Harvard, where he was trained as a sociologist. He's also a former Baltimore City police officer who happens to be working on another book. Peter, thank you so much for joining. Uh, it's an honor. Thanks for inviting me on. It's good to see you. Likewise, likewise. It's always great to talk to you. Um, so let's get right into it. Here at City Journal, my colleagues and I, we've very extensively covered the post-2020 crime spike, something that you've commented on uh, quite a bit. And, and that spike followed a, a renewed push uh, to place new restrictions on police discretion and in some cases to defund departments altogether. Uh, some of us here have suggested that there may be a connection between that push and the elevated crime levels that cities like New York and Chicago and Philadelphia have been experiencing over the last couple of years. Now, these suggestions are often met with earnest declarations that police don't actually prevent crime. Uh, we're told that they merely respond to crime after the fact. Now, some of the people making these sorts of claims, I think, know better, but others, I have a suspicion, sincerely believe this to be true. How do you respond to this line of argument? What should our listeners say when they hear the same thing at their dinner tables? I think it's important to distinguish between good faith and bad faith criticism of policing. Um, there's a lot of reform I've supported reform that actually makes things better. Now, you may not know that until after the fact, mind you, but at some point you have to judge the consequences of actions, especially when those consequences are exactly what's supposed to happen. Um, so it's one thing if people, look, are critical of policing. I certainly am. Uh, it's another if they think policing doesn't matter, if it doesn't prevent crime. Um, that's It's absurd at a common sense level. It's absurd at a research level, and you just see it asserted over and over again. <clears throat> it's like a mantra that they just, they're just trying to, uh, I don't know, trying to will into an ex existence. So I, I have very little pay. I, I, I'm tired of discussion, discussing uh, with police and prison abolitionists. Um, politically, they just have to be defeated. They're bad ideas. They're not popular ideas. Um, but when you get criticism from people who want to abolish police, you have to realize that, oh, wait, they're, they're not actually, this isn't the issue. They, whatever they say they're talking about, it's, it's just a means to an end. And so that in a way, it doesn't matter that specific issue. Um, and I've also noticed a lot of people um, are opposed to good policing more than bad policing, or at least equally, because I think good policing scares the abolitionists because that's tough. So, um, you know, in the old days, I used to joke, you know, you had to mess up as a cop to get in trouble and often not even then. Um, now the problem is police are getting in trouble when they actually do, do the job correctly. And I think that is, um, it's very counterproductive. It's unfair. And for people at risk of being victims of crime, it's dangerous. Um, we have pulled away policing from those who most need protection. It, it should be seen as a, a public service and a public utility. Um, everybody uh, is, is everybody deserves good policing and some people need it more than others, quite frankly. I mean, we have to always remember that, 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 that um, warts and all, flaws and all, policing is still a good and noble activity that, and it's needed. Whether, whether you like it or not, um, it's, it, we're going to need it, so let's try and make it as good as possible. 
Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's well said, and I, I certainly couldn't agree more. Um, of course, the abolitionists have not been um, unsuccessful necessarily in uh, their push for what I think are misguided reforms and and for you know getting police departments to have their discretion limited in really important ways. I think one of the most extreme police reforms uh, that I've seen enacted in recent months uh, is a, a new pursuit policy uh, that just uh, went into to place in Chicago, one that severely restricts the ability of police officers to pursue fleeing suspects, whether that's on foot or in a vehicle. Now, I should say it's 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 a new, only the formalization of the policy right. is new. It's been in there since soon after Adam Toledo was shot and killed. Um, so it was a temporary policy. I mention that because somebody's going to say, "Well, look, that policy came into effect, and and you know right. violence didn't go up. So clearly, <laughs> it has no impact. Um, clearly, it will have some impact. The question is how much and is it significant? But it's been in effect now for. Well, I don't know for how long, whenever that happened. Yeah, it's 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 going on uh, the better part of a year now. So, it, you know, you're exactly right. I, I actually wrote about the Toledo case uh, for City Journal uh, when it happened. And for, for listeners who aren't familiar with the case, this is a young 13-year-old kid who was uh, being chased by a Chicago police officer through a dark alley while armed with a firearm. Having fired um, that gun. Right, right. Having fired that gun, police officers were responding to a shot spotter alert that actually picked up. Uh, a gunfire in the area. I think they responded within a minute or two uh, of, of the shooting taking place, and uh, the only two people in view uh, were Adam Toledo and uh, a gang member that he was with at the time. Um, and and so you know that that policy though recently came under renewed scrutiny, and it came under renewed scrutiny uh, by the public because audio was leaked of radio traffic, and and you can hear. Uh, police officers actually being told to terminate a pursuit of a car that contained uh, murder suspects, suspects that police officers themselves had observed uh, engage in a shooting that that led to a death. I mean, what do you make of a policy that allows or leads to a police supervisor telling officers, hey, don't chase those guys who are suspected of murder, particularly in the city that has been dealing with elevated violent crime rates for you know, the better part of the last decade. It's a political choice. Um, I mean, that's exactly what the policy was designed to do. So leaving aside, I think it's a bad policy. And the policy more directly concerns foot pursuits, right? Uh, the new policy, the car pursuit policy has is, is been the same. Um, but what Chicago says now and what makes it especially, um, I don't know, uh, effective, and I mean that as a policy, not as a as a public safety issue, uh, is it says you, you simply cannot get in trouble ever for calling off a pursuit. Um, the goal is to not have pursuits. I mention that because technically some people say, well, it doesn't actually ban pursuits. Yeah, right. no, it practically does. That's the purpose. And it's effective at it. Now, I say, look, if that's really the goal, then own it. Um, but when murderers literally get away, Sure, they might be caught later. Sure, they could have crashed into a you know innocent van of church-going kids and and, and killed them all. Um, things like that have happened. There's, there's in the real world, there are always risks. But at some point, we have police to prevent crime and also apprehend criminals. And here you have people who had just murdered somebody. Um, and it was yeah, it was. Uh, I, I I wish instead of us just sitting here griping about it. Um, I wish we could have an honest debate about this, but the people who make the policies on this, they, they, they don't engage on it. 
Um, I just want someone to say, yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's the goal. And, and I understand why people are upset murderers, you know, we're not chased, but um, this is our policy. But you don't hear that. That's sort of the gaslighting element where they pretend that nothing happened. No, this, this is, right, right. you know, at some point, if you, if you don't think police prevent crime and you don't let police apprehend criminals, then, yeah, maybe we should abolish police because I don't, I don't, you know, you take away all discretionary activity. Um, you know, you mentioned in the intro that the, the crime increase in people's reaction, and, and it's tough because so much, of course, academic research is ideologically influenced. I'll be generous. Sure. Um, and it's tough to prove anything in the real world because even when you do this, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation. In the real world, you don't usually have randomized controlled experiments in a lab because you can't because it's the real world. Um, it would also be unethical in a lot of and, and it would also <laughs> potentially, yes, be unethical. Um, but we know that discretionary policing plummeted in 2020 in particular, though in different cities at different time. In Baltimore, it was 2015 after... Right. After the Freddie Gray riots in Chicago, it was uh, started 2016. After um, the ACLU was going over every stop for, for stop form that the police right. did, um, the mechanisms vary, uh, or I should say, what what leads to them varies. But when you get, and I'm not talking a 10 percent reduction in you know arrests, sure. and I don't like using arrests as a sign, but what can you do? Uh, we can count them. But when you get 50 percent reductions, 80 percent reductions in stops and arrests you would expect that to have some impact, some effect. And then you see violent crime go up. And this is not in the abstract. We're talking really like, you know, the week of, right. the week later. Um, it's, and then people say, well, we don't know that's the cause. No, we don't know that's the cause, but show me something else, damn it, that changed in that right. week. And, of course, they can't. And that, But that's why I start hitting my head against the wall because I, I, I would like to, you know, think that logic and data and uh, can, you know, persuade people. But I think for a lot of people, that's, that, that's not the case because it's not rooted in public policy. It's, it's a lot of opinion is rooted in ideology. And that's, that's a bit more dangerous if, if you know the answer before I tell you the question. That's sort of my working definition of an ideologue. Right. Um, but then at some point, we have to move forward anyway and say, um, people are dying. Uh, we can do better. We have done better. Recently. 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 It wasn't that long ago that New York had under 300 murders a year. Right. And sure, New York is still safer than most cities. Um, but well, this is this is another very popular kind of talking point that that, that I often hear uh, right right behind the, the police don't actually prevent crime line, which is that, you know, we really are making way too much of the crime increase because, after all, if you look back to the early 1990s, cities like New York are far better off. Uh, than they were back then, which you know was really a, a frustrating uh, thing for me to hear because my reaction to this has always been, why on earth should we be comparing ourselves now to a period of time in which a particular measure that we care about was the worst that it's ever been? Um, especially since we know that very recently we were able to have less than 300 murders uh, as a city. And, and also- that's, you know, that's, that's the New York you grew up in. You remember that. Right. Um, it was uh, nice. I, I don't. I, that's not something that I, I want to ever fall back to. We should, you know, one, one, once we 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 got below a certain level, we should have taken the ceiling with us in our own heads. And I, I fear that lots of people who weren't around to experience what that was like uh, are, are just comfortable leaving the ceiling up there and saying, "Well, you know, we've got all this room above our heads now." Well, because a lot of those people, and um, I'm thinking particularly of 
college-educated white progressives don't live in neighborhoods where the crime increase has affected them. Or if, even if it's gone up a little, they're still, they don't hear gunshots, you know, every other night on their block. Um, so it's very easy for them to not, <clears throat> it's very easy for them not to empathize with those victims, those people who have to live in those neighborhoods, because quite simply they don't. And to the parties they go to, it's much easier to talk about their various causes. Right. Um, you know, it's one thing if you live in a dangerous neighborhood and you say, I don't want more policing, though that is not very common. But okay, I respect that. Um, I don't live in a particularly dangerous neighborhood, so I'll shut up. Um, it's the people who don't live in the neighborhood, though, who are trying to impose their beliefs on others. That's the part that needs to be pushed back on. Um, it's, 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 I mean, <laughs> because I mean, lives literally are at stake, but it's right. not, it's just the trauma of violence, the trauma of crime. Um, Which goes beyond the victim, right? I mean, this is, this is something that I don't think people on our side of the debate have necessarily done a great job of, of, of highlighting. It's very easy to kind of look at, at measures of victimization and kind of focus on those things. And I think we should focus on those things. Um, but when someone gets shot, it's not just the person who got shot that, that, is hurt. It's not just their immediate family. It's also people who just who live in the neighborhood. Who I mean, just you know, the the psychology of living in a high crime space um, is different. You know, uh, one of the the, the analogies I, I'd like to go to here is you know I, re I remember the DC snipers and I remember watching the news um, and and going back and watching old clips and people would say you know some of the highest educated zip codes in America outside DC people would say you know I would. If I left work late, I would zigzag through the parking lot on my way back to the car, or I would drive past the E on my gas tank, you know, if it was nighttime for fear of, you know, getting out of my car to pump gas and, and, and being selected. But now your chances of being shot by the DC snipers, I think were on par with being struck by lightning and yet really educated, logical people were altering the course of their day to day lives in order to minimize that risk. And so I tell people to remember that and now imagine what it would be like to live in a neighborhood in which someone gets shot every week in which the possibility of being violently victimized is realer than the possibility of you going to graduate school. Yeah. Um, it's also, it's not, it's hard for your kids to do homework when there were just gunshots outside. It's hard to finish your, you know, romantic dinner and go, just ignore those gunshots. Right. I wonder if anyone was shot. It just your mind, it takes your mind to dark places. Um, and there's studies on that and the influence of violence on, on, on you know, children's school uh, ability in their test scores. Um, you know, I'm also going to add one thing. It's bad for the person who does the killing, too. Sure. Um, perhaps that shouldn't be as, you know, on tops of our list compared to the, to the, to the victim and, and innocent bystanders. But, um, my God, yeah, it's, it, it, when somebody who perhaps has committed an armed robbery and isn't detained, you know, thanks to recent changes in law, then goes out and kills someone, um, that's two lives that are now ruined now. Right. Um, but of course, it's it's very hard to get any sort of traction on on the idea of crime prevention because you can't measure it very easily. Crime right. goes down, they say it's magic or something in the air. Uh, crime goes up, they say the same thing, and they kind of forget. Um, crime is very localized. It's a very interpersonal. I mean, yes, yeah, sometimes bullets fly and kill someone else, but generally, um, it's it's a it's a very localized human. A phenomenon that has to be addressed at that level, not with abstract theory, not with talking about, you know, poverty reduction programs. Though I'm against poverty, right. uh, it's not a violence reduction program. Right. Um, and we know that because, I mean, for instance, in New York in the 90s, uh, which is what my next book is on, um, 
the crime drop in New York in the 90s. Poverty actually went up during that decade in New York, and a lot of people yeah. don't know that. Inequality increased, poverty increased, and murders dropped 80%. Um, so we know we can reduce violence uh, without addressing some of the root causes. Again, not that we shouldn't also address them, but if if, if that's... Well, they're not root causes, right? I mean, that, that's, causes. The, that's, that's the idea. Well, you know, at some level they might be. Sure. Um, Maybe I, I, for, there's some evidence, for example, that property crime goes up when, when unemployment rates uh, go up or when poverty rates go up. I, I can see that there's, you know, there's a much clearer connection. But when it comes to violence, I mean, you don't get richer um, when you pull the trigger over some perceived slight. Yeah. Um, um, it's just, if, if it, it's changing the subject when people talk about right. that. And again, how can you be against better education or reduced poverty, that kind of stuff? But that's not the issue. Um, it's, it's, we, violence goes up quickly and down quickly. And, 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 the, and while there may be many ways to affect it, one of those ways we know works is um, effective policing. But that requires policing, you know, as, as a verb, as, as some right. of us like to say. It also requires, I think smart criminal justice policy to back up those policing efforts. And this is something that I've written about, you know, a few times at a piece in the Post last year saying, you know, refunding the police is not going to be enough, basically making the argument that when police officers, I mean, we talked about mechanisms earlier, when police officers reduce crime, they do so in a, in a few different ways. They can deter crime through their presence on the street, um, but they can also reduce crime through the incapacitation of the offenders that they arrest, right? They respond to a crime scene in time. They catch somebody who's a suspect. A witness points them out. They make an arrest. That person gets charged with an offense and convicted of that offense. Now they're off the street for two, three, four years. Um, you know, that's, who knows, eight, 16, 25 crimes that are abated during the period of time in which that person's incarcerated. That matters. So if we're going to if, if we want effective Before you policing, go on, can I sure. mention other positive benefits from from removing repeat violent offenders from, from the block, which is um, the effect it has on anyone that's looking up to him as a role model. Yeah. Um, and also the effect it has on neighbors who want nothing to do with him um, but might be willing to, uh, you know, even after the event, tell cops what's up because they'll know that he'll be removed as opposed to telling right. cops um, that this guy did something and then having your name go back to that person and the person is, is I mean, the person's literally your neighbor. It's, it's a tough balancing act, but um, it, it, that tolerance is, it just kills legitimacy of, of, of the whole, I hate using the term criminal justice system, because you know, we all know the things about it not being a real system, but right. every part of it from, from, from police to prosecution, the courts to, to incarceration, it all, it all goes to hell. Yeah. Yeah. And you, know, you mentioned something really important, which was, you know, that when you take a criminal off the street of a repeat offender, a gangster, um, you not only have the benefit of the crimes that are abated by virtue of that person's absence, but you know, they're also not around to influence young people. And we also talked about the Adam Toledo case a while, uh, uh, back and and I actually wrote a piece for city journal on that case kind of asking the question rhetorically, who actually killed Adam Toledo? We all know he was shot by a police officer, but he was not alone in the alley that day. He was accompanied by a 21-year-old uh, uh, gang member named Ruben Roman. Um, and uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that on a school night, this 13-year-old kid is out with an older kid he probably looked up to, um, you know, who was in a gang. And if that person who had a very extensive uh, criminal history, uh, had at least uh, six arrests in the uh, publicly available uh, Chicago arrest database. Uh, you know, maybe Adam Toledo wouldn't have been in that alley that day. Maybe he'd still be he alive today. Been. But we're not, we don't talk about 
family. I mean, it, uh, you know, the mayor didn't mention. I mean, at some point, yeah, there's a 13-year-old on a school night out right. with an older gang member uh, in an alley. Well, they weren't in an alley when they fired the gun. Right. Um, and again, I don't know what casting blame in a way accomplishes, but it's weird not to. <laughs> just, yeah. just so we can make sure that we're all sort of rooted in the same I don't know, foundation of reality here. Um, clearly, uh, that kid was not being raised properly. Now, what you do with that, I don't know. But to say cops shouldn't pursue somebody on foot is a bizarre t- reaction to me. But Especially when that somebody is suspected of pulling a trigger of a deadly weapon that, that could have taken a life. If that person stays on the street, there's a good chance that they eventually will succeed in taking a life. And that, you know, that has ripple effects that we can't even begin to understand. Um, uh, just in terms of in, in terms of the harm that that does to a community. So I, I want to go back to, to policing a little bit because, you know, as I mentioned in, in when I was introducing you, you have a, a sort of unique uh, set of experiences. You're an academic, um, you're an Ivy League educated sociologist, but you've also actually spent time in a police cruiser wearing a bulletproof vest, uh, a badge and a gun in what is, I think, largely understood to be one of the top five most dangerous cities in America, Baltimore. Um, would you make that same decision today in today's climate? Probably. Um, Say more. Well, the the reason I got into policing as a field, I wanted to study something urban related because I've always been a city boy. Um, but I started grad school in '95, just as the great, great crime drop was was swinging into full gear, full gear in, in New York and then other places, and. Um, at the same time, I'm reading all the experts in sociology and criminology say that policing can't reduce crime and we have to, crime won't go down unless we make major changes in gun policy, drugs, education, racism, all the usual suspects. And yet we weren't making changes in any of those other things and violence is plummeting. So I went into the field thinking if all the experts are wrong, um, it's probably a good field to get into. It's due for a... a Kunzian scientific revolution has got to be happening here. And, and it's, it half did. It, it got police back in the crime prevention game. The crime drop did. Sure. Um, and I give, I give Bill Bratton a lot of credit for that, for saying this is our job. So now flash forward um, nearly 30 years. Uh, but in a way, the same thing is happening in reverse. So I could see having the same sort of question and people saying, gosh, I have no idea why crime is going up. Um, I mean, I, I went into policing as a Harvard grad student for the purpose of dissertation research. So I was an odd cop. I mean, I was also an odd grad student, but um, so I didn't, I wasn't planning on doing 20 years and I didn't, I did 20 months. Um, But I I don't see, you know, it's not like cops were loved back then. I think it has gotten worse. And I think the job in Baltimore certainly has, um, has, has, has changed. And, you know, when I was there, we used to Legally, I should add, and constitutionally, we used to clear drug corners, and that stopped, and violence went up. Um, again, these are political choices, uh, but I, I think sort of now more than ever would be good. And also, pardon me, hell, you know, they don't have an age requirement. I could go back and rejoin. Occasionally, yeah. I have dreams about I'm back in the Baltimore Police Academy. Uh, I'm too old for New York, but um, <laughs> I'm not too old for Baltimore. Um, because policing has changed. It's, it's, it's another generation, and, and I'm, you know, I, I do still informally, you know, have a lot of connections in the police world, but I'd like to see how it's changed. But yeah, I, I would do it again. Um, I certainly wouldn't be able to, I mean, if, you know, to some extent, I banked my career on, on on the knowledge I gained as a police officer in Baltimore. It's certainly at least given me, you know, it gives me some street cred 
you know, I wouldn't be able to talk to cops as easily had I not had that experience. There's a, there's a, there's a level of trust that is assumed. You know, you can always go, that can always go south. Sure. But um, it really helps in the, in the type of work I do, which does involve talking to a lot of cops. You know, policing has changed a lot. I mean, you know, I, I never served in the police department, but I'm the son of somebody who did here in New York City. Um, and it's changed in a couple of ways. I mean, I, I, I certainly think over the last decade, we have seen a new and, at least to me, unfair level of scrutiny applied to the actions of police officers in the field. I think that lots of police officers are feeling embattled, at least the ones I talk to. And I think that feeling um, is reasonable, you know, it, as they as they'll put it, um, you know, they have no expectation that they'll get a fair shot should they ever find themselves in uh, a situation in which, uh, you know, they had a, a questionable use of force situation or. In but but which- let me just to say it's unfair scrutiny isn't right. The scrutiny is legit. It's it's the conclusion that's unfair. Right. right. Um, I'm all for the scrutiny of it. It's that we no longer define. It's that we we, we don't understand what is good and, and not good in terms of police action and use of force. I don't know if that matters. Those no, yeah, that, that that's well said. That's well said. That's a, that's, that's a good point. And, you know, it, one of the reasons that I think it's, it's unfair is because one of the other things that's changed in policing is that it's become a much more professionalized uh, uh, career. And with that professionalization, we have seen declines in the sort of measures that I think are undergirding a lot of the critiques being lobbed at, at policing as an institution today, which is to say that Police use force way left way less often. Um, I think the NYPD shot more than 220 people in 1971, which is the first year that I could find. Um, it's the first year they counted. That they counted. Uh, I think that number is now down to about 20 a year. Um, less often, but yeah, something around that. You know, yeah. that's a that's a big change, and yet, at least from my perspective, the the tone of the police reform debate seems to have only gotten hotter. The temperature has only gone up. It's it's almost as if that change didn't happen. And so, you know, if I were a police officer sort of watching this trend in which the outcomes that performers say they care about have all moved in the right direction, and yet, um, uh, you know, it, it's become uh, even more and more um, uh, sort of demonized as a profession, I, I think there's a, a lo- an understandable level of frustration that I suspect is uh, undergirding the recruitment and retention crisis that I think departments across the country have been dealing with for the last five years. I think part of it is cops will become, and maybe even should, which I don't, which is unfortunate, should, but, you know, become more socially isolated. Um, That's one way to, you just don't listen to the criticism coming from the left. Uh, You know, before I used to say it was, again, that idea that it was off, it seemed to me, uh, a few years back, it was it was well-intentioned criticism or better intention. I mentioned, I think a lot of that has changed. So, um, yeah. So, just, but I don't. So I don't know what the, the cops. It, it has hurt recruitment. Look, if you spent the past five years with a inadvertent, and I don't want to, and I don't want to imply it's conspiratorial, but a sort of media um, push uh, to demonize policing and police officers. Um, I'm old enough, old enough to remember when soldiers were were evil and cops were good, uh, but um, so that's sort of flipped now. Um, of course, why would you want to join a job where if you turn on, you know, certain stations, you just sort of people pass things. Oh, you know, that they're 
They're just, you know, hunting black people and things, you know, just statements that are casually said and that aren't checked. Um, and apparently, you know, I'd be skeptical of the polling, but people think that cops are shooting, you know, and killing thousands and thousands of people right. a year, um, of unarmed people a year at that. So, you know, over time, I think the pendulum will swing back. I think we see that a little bit. I think you saw that in the election of Eric Adams in New York, where he made crime an issue. I believe just uh, yesterday that Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore lost her election. Um, so people maybe are having enough of this in certain cities. But hey, you know, you get elections have consequences. You get to choose them. Um, but in becoming a cop, you know, and this is why I think the protests and riots um, after George Floyd was murdered hurt cops so much. I'm thinking particularly of New York cops. And I'm thinking particularly of some older um, cops I know here who are from the city. Um, they're, you know, they're not white. Um, they live in the city. They care about the city. And I want to remember you know, one in particular telling me, um, and she just said it was so weird to have you know, these, she put it, these white girls who could, who are young enough to be my daughter, who just, you know, moved to Brooklyn looking up at me and, and, and she is a tall woman, uh, looking up at me and, and, you know, calling me racist. And it was just, it, it blew her mind all because cops murdered a man in, 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 in Minnesota. Um, but if you take away that idea, look, I don't want to, you know, it can be a great job for some people, right? It's it's a government job. You got a good pension. There are benefits. Um, it's it's got a fair amount of job security. Uh, but a lot of cops do it. There is that sense that you're asking people to risk their lives. You're asking them to run towards gunfire to protect people they may not know, may not even like. It doesn't matter. It's a big ask. Yeah. Um, if you take away the nobility of it. If you say that actually matters a lot, just to say that yeah, you're on the you're on the side of good because cops certainly believe that. So when society takes that away, it, it really does kind of hurt the profession and, and hurt the cop. Well, then why am I doing this? Right. Um, I mean, in 2020, remember we went from in late May we literally went from standing you know, on our fire escapes and roofs at 7 p.m. applauding cops during COVID um, to hating them oh, it, within a week. A week, yep. Um, I think people forget that right before George Floyd, people were literally applauding cops as part of, of first responders and, and you know, essential yep. workers and all of that. Um, and one incident changed it. Um, so I don't know. We're go there are going to be other incidents. That's that's part of the problem is, is it is a big country. And the other bizarre thing about it was the cop was arrested, charged, and prosecuted. Right, swiftly. In the past, it was, you know, no justice, no peace kind of right. protests. Here, I don't, I mean, that's the system we have. Arguably, it worked. There right. was accountability. I, don't, right. so, I think he was so fired now. within 24 hours. And so, I, yeah, so it's, a, so I, you know, I don't know what, yeah, I don't, I don't quite know what to say about it anymore. You know, talk, staying on the point of the recruitment and retention crisis, I mean, I have long believed that the people most likely to ask to ask the question why do this are people who have other options, um, and particularly people who have higher levels of education. Which Can I, will you hold that thought for one sure. second? Because when I was, I was still in field. No, it was after after field. I was, when I was a cop, one of the guys who I knew from field training, he said he told me, um, he said you're not a real cop, and I thought he was gonna you know get on the Harvard thing or something, and he right. said. 
he said, no, you're, you're doing the job. That's fine. When you're out there, you're a cop, but you can quit. He said, I can't quit. Mm. And that's the difference. And he was right to that yeah. extent. Yeah. No, I think there is something uh, internal and innate that, that really drives certain people um, to do that kind of work people who genuinely want to make a difference in, in their communities. And then it switches to often they get stuck in it and they know they can't quit right. because they have financial commitments. And That's exactly right. And on top of that, you have spent, you know, however many years building a set of experiences that aren't transferable into any other line of work. Um, and you um, have, and depends on the city, of course, you might have just a high school diploma and no other work experience. You're not right. actually a hot job market prospect there. That's right. Um, but I, anyway, sorry to interrupt, but that's why, but yes, I, I had other choices. So I could ask, I, I could ask that question and right. say I'm out of here. Yeah. I mean, as did I, I mean, I took the, the LSAT and the NYPD exam, uh, a few days apart, um, and I ultimately chose, chose law school. And, um, so, but, but I've also, you know, written a, a few times that I think a particular effort should be made to boost recruitment, not just generally, but also among the subpopulation of potential recruits who are highly educated, in part because I think um, you know there's there's good evidence showing that you know uh, people co cops with college degrees, for example, use force at lower rates, even in the same sort of situations as their uh, uh, counterparts with just the high school education. Um, which is not to say that there's no such thing as a high school educated cop who's a good cop. My dad you know, dropped out of high school, got a GED, and I think had a really good career as an NYPD detective. Um, but I do think that the professionalization of the force was um, something that's good. I think it produced uh, good results, and it's something I think we should build on. Um, as someone who has the the kind of, you know, very elite educational background, but also found himself doing the job, what would your advice be? Well, first off, do you think that's a good idea? Do you think that's a good focus to try and boost recruitment among that subset of the potential recruit population? And then if so, what would your advice be to do that? I think it might be good. I don't know if it would be the most effective way to improve policing. Um, I think it might it depends on the city a bit. New York is blessed with being um, a heavy immigrant city, something, you know, roughly, I don't know what it is now, but, you know, roughly one in three New Yorkers is foreign born. Um, their children uh, could be great cops. Um, I mean, these are the students of mine that I teach at, sure. at John Jay College. They're all immigrants and kids of immigrants. Um, I just worry that it, I, I'm all for. Uh, higher standards, education standards, everything. Um, I just don't, I think it's tough to recruit from that group, especially if 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 the public narrative is that it's an evil job doing evil things. Um, why would you do that? Um, I noticed the the cadre of police leadership that um, led the New York City's crime drop. I'm uh, talking about Lou Anamone, Jack Maple, uh, Bill Bratton, Mike Julian, um, and a few others. Um, Bratton went to college as a cop, right. thanks to funding. The others, um, I don't, they eventually, you know, they, they eventually got many of them advanced degrees. Jack Maple was a high school dropout with a GED. Um, a lot of them became, got into policing through the cadet program, so they started earlier and are funneled into it. Um, in many ways, they were overqualified, um, both as matters of character and intelligence. Um, had they come from different 
social classes? Had they not grown up in public housing? Had they, like me, you know, had their parents been teachers and, and it was just simply expected I would go to college? Um, I don't think they ever would have become cops. So to some point, this is a long way of saying I think it might be better for police departments to tap, tap those who um, through through you know social class birth wherever they're from um, aren't aren't getting better opportunities don't have the money uh, and tapping that and getting just great people who will end up being great police officers and now these aren't mutually exclusive by the way sure. you can do yeah, both yeah. Um, but maybe policing is better to embrace its uh, it's, it's sort of blue collar image a little bit um, and I'm saying that because there are a lot of really smart blue collar cops out there absolutely um, and. I do think college makes you a better person, and I think that makes you a better cop. I do think college makes uh, simply makes you older, uh, and that That's makes true. you a better cop. Um, I don't. So you have to take all these things into account. So, look, if you, if if you you asked me, you know, do I support what you're say? So yes, I do, but I just I don't know. It's a lot of work, and I, I don't know how many recruits you're actually going to get. Right. Yeah. No. I think uh, I think those are all fair points to make. I mean, you know. The, the kind of model that inspired this idea on my part was it was the U.S. military, which, you know, offers, a, you know, you can enter the U.S. military as an officer if you have a college degree. So you have a higher promotional ceiling, a sort of more reliable, faster promotional track, a higher pace, pay grade. Um, and, and so that's so like ROTC we're talking about, right? Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, officer candidate school. Okay. So, you know, you graduate college, you can, you can, you know, go in as an enlisted person or you can go in uh, to OCS. And, um, you know, it's, it, it does seem to be an effective way of attracting, you know, high uh, level recruits into the U.S. military. Although that probably, uh, I suspect, is, is changing as well, uh, even if it doesn't get as much publicity. Um, and so, you know, yeah, let me, let me add, add one difference that's important to point out, which is the leadership in the military has direct command and control over the men and women that they are in charge of. Um, policing is an odd job. The leadership matters, and it matters a lot, particularly at the top, um, in that the men and women doing the work don't have supervisors present. Right. Um, and that's... <laughs> and so you've got this this paramilitary model of command and control that doesn't actually have command and control. Um, so I think it's more important to focus. I mean, the sergeant, of course, is key because that is the immediate supervisor. Sure. But um, ultimately, we are putting a lot of decision making and use of force and lethal use of force on the patrol officer um, acting independently. And that is not the military model. So I worry a little bit because that military model tends to discourage um, decision-making right. and emphasize order following. And it, that's ultimately we, we, we need the right decisions made by people who don't have supervisors present. Interestingly, it seems like the, the sort of revolution of, of reducing crime, particularly in New York City, was sort of coupled with an increase in police discretion a sort of higher level of trust um, uh, given to officers who, you know, had a lot of power when they were out in the field in terms of the decisions that they were going to make on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and yet today it seems like the reform movement is motivated sort of primarily by a desire to restrict discretion in every way possible. Um, and so maybe there's something there uh, that's incongruous with you know, getting crime back under control in cities that have lost it. The job involves discretion. Um, 
I'm very pro discretion, but even if you, even if the, that concept doesn't appeal to somebody, you still have to embrace it because that's the reality. So let's uh, you know make it as good as good as possible. Bratton's leadership was interesting because he really increased the discretion at the level of of precinct commander, um, and and said, "You are free to experiment, do what you need to do. This is your little fiefdom." Um, wasn't so much discretion at, at the bottom level, though he did certainly say, yeah, if you, well, this is interesting because again, fly, think of this in 2022 context, because Bratton was saying this in 1994, if you see a crime committed in front of you, feel free to arrest the person <laughs> uh, because that wasn't done particularly in relation to, to drug crimes right. uh, in 1994 because the fear was corruption and that was the dominating factor from really Serpico on through, through, through your early 90s in the NYPD. Um, so, you know, and he was also very tough and, you know, famously tough and somewhat showy about disciplining cops who were corrupt. Uh, so that, that combination seemed to work and that there was not a major corruption scandal. Cops felt like they could do their job again and, um, and they were supported by their boss and, and by the organization. Um, that's something we're lacking now. So I think it's going to start with, with political leadership in the non-police level that, um, you know, Adams is interesting because he was elected in part on his crime stuff, but he right. also seems to be meddling in the police department because he can't, can't keep his hands off. So it's not so clear who actually is running, running the show there. Um, and that's, that, that's a separate issue. But, I, you know, it, it's – was it Bratton? Someone wrote an article recently about um, reform, but the best reform happening from within. It might have been. Yeah, a, it was. Oh, in the Atlantic, Bratton, right? Yep, in the Atlantic. Um, I, I, I've – heard that argument before and agree with it, but it was interesting to see it in kind of a mainstream magazine. It doesn't get a, it get enough attention that, um, again, even if you don't like cops, don't trust cops and think they're up to no good, if you really want to change them, it has to happen from within. You can restrict from the outside, and that's what we've seen, but it's really hard to make an organization that is sort of, you know, I'm not, I can't even fake business jargon, but, you know, mission-driven and, sure. and solutions-oriented. <laughs> uh, it's really hard to do that from the outside um, right. and deal with officer morale and, and things like that. Um, it's got to come from within. So while I can talk to you all day, it, it, I think now is probably a, a good place to end. But it seems like the sort of overarching theme of this conversation is these are political choices. We can and probably should make different ones if things are going to get better. Are you optimistic? No, I'm not. I know we're supposed to say we are. Um, no, I think it's 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 going to get worse before it gets better. Um, and that's not to say I'm hopeless. Uh, I don't think it's going to, you know, we're not, it's not going to end in complete societal destruction and anarchy. Uh, but currently, um, I think, you know, the pendulum at least may have stopped swinging out to the kooky side. Uh, but I think there'll be a bit of a political realignment. It's interesting to see and somewhat disturbing to see more of an alliance between the far left on the far right and things like prosecuting gun crime. Sure. Um, and there's some other examples of that where, you know, who would have thought that they'd be on the same side? Um, so maybe as that happens, um, other people will start to realize that, oh, we have to vote for more sensible rather than idealistic candidates, or you can vote for sensible idealistic ones, but this idea of just sort of pie in the sky, oh, I'm going to vote for whoever's most progressive, I think is that those days might be over as, as the um, 
oh, that was the other thing DSA did was they kind of came out for Russia and the invasion of <laughs> Ukraine. Like that was a wake up call to a lot of their supporters. Like, oh yeah, yeah that's right, because they hate NATO, they hate the West. Um, so there are a bunch of things. So I, I, I don't. I, it's not that I'm hopeless, but no, I don't think things are going to get better tomorrow. And and the, we do have to keep. Yeah, you know, it's it's just a rare field where lives literally are at stake. Um, if we can reduce violence next year, and we could. Uh, you know, that's an immediate good and it's a long-term good. Um, but first we have to, I think, you know, agree um, on what what the role of police is. And um, currently it is not crime prevention. And that, what I mean, and again, we had this model from, from the Kerner Commission in the late 60s to the early 90s. Um, and now we're sort of going back to that. And so whether it's, hopefully it's a, hopefully it's a matter of a few years, it could be a matter of a few decades. Well, Peter, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining. Um, Listeners, you can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal. You can find us on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. Peter Moskos is always on Twitter. You can catch him at Peter Moskos. And as always, if you like what you heard on the podcast, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And um, again, you can catch my new book, which is out Tuesday, July 26, Criminal Injustice. And Peter, do you have a working title for your book yet? Uh, the working title is, um, they said it couldn't be done. It's a oral history of the crime drop in New York City. Um, it's still a bit of a ways off, but the, the draft is done. Lots of good interviews. And um, I never did interview your father. I should have, but no. I didn't. Well, we'll keep an eye out for it. Let me also, um, if yeah, the, uh, a lot of the people I've mentioned, I've interviewed them, and it is online at um, my quality policing uh, website and podcast. So, and people can hear some of those that I, I spoke to. Great. Well, I'll check that out. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.